Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, February the 22nd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. This Friday, it will be one year exactly since Russian forces began their invasion of Ukraine, setting in train a military conflict on a scale unseen in Europe since the Second World War. Twelve months on, as brutal fighting continues around towns such as Bakhmut and analysts predicting a military escalation with the spring thaw, it remains entirely unclear how or when this war might end. Today, we've asked three of our foreign correspondents to join us to give us some insight into the the different geopolitical perspectives which have driven the international response to the war so far, and which ultimately, alongside military developments on the ground, are likely to have a key influence on its outcome. So I'm very happy to welcome our China correspondent, Dennis Staunton, our Berlin correspondent, Derek Scali, and our Europe correspondent, Naomi O'Leary. Hello to you all. Hi. Hello to you. Naomi, can I go to you first, please? I mean, Henry Kissinger had a famous quote about uh, a question, rather. He said, who do I call if I want to speak to Europe? Is the answer to that question any clearer at all after the last 12 months? I think it is. Um, I think that the war has caused a sudden consolidation in the Western alliances. Uh, It's repaired relations substantially between the UK and the EU and suddenly have really close coordination across the Atlantic. And you saw really concrete examples of this, like, you know, diplomats from the EU actually going to make calls to Washington from the UK embassy and so on. Uh, You know, there's this very close, uh, closely coordinated reaction and sort of realization that on great issues, they are very much on the same page. And there's also been structural developments, for example, within the European Commission. It's long been the case that Washington has had very strong, very old relations with member state governments. But now what we see is that um, on the level of like civil servants and officials, there's a recognition that of the role of the commission, not just in sort of enacting what member states decide, but also at times leading. So you can have the European Commission, for example, pushing forward something on sanctions and the value of coordinating with coordinating with the Commission as a central point in terms of what the EU is doing, particularly on measures like economic sanctions. So economic sanctions obviously form a very a very important part of that in terms of a, a, a European-wide policy. But but there are other big things too, aren't there? I mean, most notably the two that strikes us are our energy policy has been turned upside down uh, by these events and, and also defence policy. Very profound transformation in both. In terms of energy, this is like a line in the sand. Prior to this, the reliance on the by, of the EU on Russian hydrocarbons was um, extreme, uh, particularly for economies like Germany, uh, with this uh, convenient arrangement for cheap gas um, that underpinned German industry and so on. And that relationship has now been broken and I don't think it's going to be repaired. And what we've seen is these extraordinary developments towards decarbonisation, which would have seemed um, unthinkable at some times. Uh, But now the green agenda has a very, very hard-headed 
economic rationale and strategic rationale. So we see movements like the European Parliament confirming a date for the phase out of the combustion em- engine, massive uh, steps forward like that, which, you know, yes, like I said, would have seemed unthinkable. Um, I think that it's seemed to be happening you know, slowly and then all at once. And then on defence, um, it's it, there's a nuance there. So it's true that the EU has taken steps that it never took before. For example, you using a common fund to essentially reimburse member states for paying for military supplies for Ukraine. But also what this invasion has done is reveal the real weakness of the EU as a defence player and the extent to which it relies on the United States. It's really revealed that, confirmed it, showed EU um, cooperation on defence to be extremely paltry. And in absence of that, then what's happened is the EU has openly acknowledged its reliance on the United States really for defence purposes and declared very much closer cooperation with NATO. So we'll see a greater sort of integration and cooperation with NATO going forward, I think. And uh, there's a huge amount in all that, some of which we'll return to. Um, I'm going to go to Dennis in a moment, but just one last question, because another thing which has happened as a result of this, uh, it, it seems, is a, a sort of a rebalancing of power across the, the European Union as a whole, as for obvious reasons, the countries of Central and Eastern Europe have been have been most vocal and most active, as they're the countries that are most affected by these events. Yeah, I mean, the authority of France and Germany and Western Europe more broadly was really undermined by the fact of the invasion and how unprepared they were and the how foolish many of their particularly economic and trade policies were revealed to be and simultaneously the more eastern member states the baltics and so on were revealed to have been correct in their assessment of vladimir putin and his intentions to invade and his rather menacing policy towards them as well so suddenly the sort of weight of authority on defense security um in the wider european region that suddenly fell uh, to the east um and so we've had um that perspective take a much more central um, position in the general EU. So certainly on security and defence that um, uh, the the weight of opinion in the EU has shifted eastward. Derek, if I can go to you, I mean, these these uh, policies which Naomi's describing there can seem quite abstruse and, and and high level, but these things are having an impact on the on the ground on people's lives. And reading with interest your your feature today from Munster in in Germany, which is uh, I never knew this, but uh, I found it out from your piece this morning, is probably the most significant military city in Germany, and what's actually going on there and how people's lives have actually changed over the last twelve months. Yes, uh, Germany likes to keep its sort of its its military out of sight. When you have a history uh, like Germany's, you know, there's always been a huge ambivalence or negativity towards anything military. So uh, Munster is a town; it's, it's hidden in the forest between Hamburg and and Hanover. And I went there because it's become a hub. It's where Germany is meeting its European commitments to train Ukrainians on using tanks and and defense systems and weapon systems. And um, it's it was quite a quite an eye-opener really I mean all these tanks that we've been hearing about these last weeks and months the Leopard 2 tanks and so on there they are sitting around it's like a car rental except for tanks and the Ukrainians are coming over being brought over we're not being told how uh, we're not given precise numbers on how many 
But um, this is basically just day and night. If you'd said a year ago, oh yeah, Germany's going to be exporting tanks to Ukraine, they're going to be training them in Germany and sending them over. This was just absolutely unthinkable. And I think, yeah, as Naomi said, it's literally just day and night uh, compared to where we were a year ago. In Germany, it's been a painful experience for them. But the fact that they're now doing this, um, a, quite, you know, a year is on the one hand a long time, but we're talking about sort of the, the collapse of illusions and the, a change in really the post-Cold War era. Even in many respects, the post-war era, Germany is now in a place it never wanted to be in and never wanted to go there. Uh, but now it's sort of facing up to some harsh realities and um, and many shattered illusions. And I think this military base and the reality there, the realpolitik, um, really it was quite quite stark. But it's been a very uneven process, hasn't it? There was that very striking speech earlier, er, early on, uh, by by the Chancellor to the to the Bundestag, basically, you know, speaking about a complete reversal of of German policy as as it had been up until then. But then there have been kind of recurring criticisms. I'm not sure how fair they are. Maybe you could tell me of Germany dragging its feet in comparison to the support which has been given to Ukraine by uh, by other Western countries. Yes, it's 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 a difficult one, isn't it? I mean, on the one hand, Germany has um, annoyed many of its uh, neighbours, east and west, in recent years, and particularly since the start of the Ukraine debate. But the last couple of weeks have been fascinating because let's just take the tanks issue. Um, the, you know, there was an argument that the Leopard two tanks made by a German company. Um, they uh, are the best tanks in in the world and that they need to be on the Eastern Front, Ukraine's Eastern Front with Russia. And the argument was that Germany is not only not supplying its own tanks, uh, but it's it's preventing other countries uh, re-exporting their tanks, which is a, a term of sale. Once you, you buy German tanks, you cannot just pass them on without permission from Germany. And this was really building and building. There was quite a, a lot of tension over this. And what we then saw is um, in the last weeks, Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor, said, okay, we'll provide 14 tanks. And what we've now seen is a huge silence from a lot of the other countries, some of whom were were pressing Germany and arguing that Germany's holding everything up. So the Germans are sort of, it's almost like things have turned on their head and now Chancellor Scholz and the Germans are waiting for other people to sign up and provide tanks. So Germany is absolutely determined. It doesn't want to be at the head of the posse. It doesn't want to be at the back. It wants to be somewhere in the middle. Um, and it doesn't want any solo runs. So it really is in a dilemma um, because unless other people act, it doesn't want to be seen to be the only people supplying tanks to Ukraine, battle tanks to Ukraine, um, because uh, what are the consequences? So, And also Olaf Scholz is dealing with a hugely ambivalent German public. Um, the last time there was a poll on this, it was just before he made the tanks announcement, and uh, 40% of Germans felt that what they were doing up until then, sending ammunition, sending equipment, um, selling, sending weapon systems. 40% said that's about enough. Uh, and only a quarter of people felt they should be doing more. So that may have shifted a little bit since then, but there's huge ambivalence here that at the end of the day, these are tanks, these are battle tanks, these are weapons of war, weapons of death. This is not somebody, somewhere Germany ever wanted to be. And uh, while it doesn't want to be holding this up, it doesn't want to be seen to be rushing into things either. Dennis, the view of this is very different from where, where you are, isn't it? Maybe you could uh, explain to our listeners what the position of Xi Jinping's government is on, on the war. China is, uh, it would say it is neutral on the war, uh, but it's a kind of a complicated form of neutrality. So China didn't endorse the Russian invasion of Ukraine last year, but it also hasn't condemned it. 
And while uh, China repeats all the time that it believes that territorial sovereignty and integrity must be respected, uh, it also shares the Russian analysis that the root cause of this conflict is NATO expansion, is American aggression. And so uh, from China's perspective, what uh, the United States and its allies did in the 1990s was that they squandered an opportunity uh, to have uh, a generous settlement with the vanquished uh, enemy in the Soviet Union, and instead that uh, against, uh, in contradiction to a number of promises made, it pursued this form of NATO uh, expansion. And so they uh, would see that uh, you know the Americans essentially are in inviting the Chinese to come and join the uh, Western, the collective West, in this uh, in supplying weapons uh, to. Ukraine and in sanctioning Russia, that essentially they're inviting China to help them to deal with Russia so they can then focus on dealing with China and confronting China and uh, preventing China's rise as an economic, technological and military power. So it does look very different from China. And yet there is a sort of conflict of interest within China, isn't it, which has to be balanced. On the one hand, these events have drawn Russia further into the sphere of influence of China, and it stands to benefit from that. And we see it using more Russian energy and um, having more Russian trade because of the sanctions with the West. On the other hand, China also has to balance that with what's extremely important to it, which are its own trade interests in the West, its relationships with, with Europe and the United States. Yes. Uh, before the war, uh, famously, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin said that they had a partnership which had no limits. But in fact, that partnership uh, has very clear limits. Uh, it's not an alliance. Uh, uh, China doesn't do alliances with people. Uh, it's got one with North Korea, but that's about the only one. And there's also, it's not clear just how far uh, China is prepared to go. Uh, one, it's, you know, one thing that China has been very careful to do, for example, is to avoid breaching any Western sanctions uh, against Russia. And uh, in the same way that despite what uh, a certain amount of saber-rattling from Washington and from Brussels over the last few days, there is no evidence as yet uh, that uh, China has been uh, supplying lethal uh, military equipment to Russia, whereas obviously the Western powers have been uh, supplying lethal military uh, weapons to Ukraine. So they haven't been doing anything uh, of that nature. So there, there are limits. And they've also warned Russia very clearly that uh, it uh, should not use uh, nuclear weapons happens under any circumstances. Having said all of that, uh, uh, China is providing economic support, uh, diplomatic support, it's buying uh, Russian energy, it's selling Russia cars and many of the other things that it's not getting from the West anymore. And, uh, and also, very clearly, it's not in China's interest that Russia should lose this war. Uh, because uh, what the last thing that China wants is a large country with a large border to its north falling into the realm of uh, the, the, the American sphere of influence. And so what, so what China is looking for is a peace settlement and as soon as possible, partly because the longer this goes on, the greater the danger is that Russia will lose and also the greater the damage potentially is to China's relationship with the West. And China and the West are so entangled economically, China's priority right now after it's emerged from zero COVID is to get the economy going again and to plug itself back into the global trading system. And so uh, this war is getting in the way of that. 
In seeking peace, uh, China has a lot of support uh, elsewhere in the global south, where a lot of these countries, uh, they feel that uh, their interests have not been taken into account as the West has sought support for uh, for this war. And, that, uh, and they feel as if they're affected downstream by everything from food supplies to economic instability. And they also share with China uh, a resistance to the idea of American hegemony. They seek a multipolar system. They're skeptical about the current rules-based international order, partly because uh, every iteration of this rules-based international order, going back to the Treaty of Westphalia and, and on to its most recent one uh, after the Second World War, has been designed by white uh, people of European extraction. And the last iteration, uh, it was designed, this current post uh, rules-based settlement was designed before deco decolonization. And of course, what everybody also notices is that the rules don't apply to the United States, that the United States tears up the rules when it feels like it, whether that's in Iraq, in Kosovo, the list is, uh, goes on. And so there's a great deal of scepticism which China shares with various other countries in the global south about all of this, this entire military uh, uh, conflict. And certainly it, uh, you know, they would feel that the best approach to this is actually to seek peace as soon as possible. Naomi, the, the position which Dennis articulates there, the position of China and of many other countries um, outside outside Europe and, and the West, uh, is occasionally articulated by vocal opponents of the war um, on the left and the right of European politics, but isn't, isn't generally shared by the centre and the mainstream. But the question does arise this week, particularly as people look back over the last 12 months, what is the end game here realistically and how much of a disjunction is there between the stated aims of full-throated support for Ukraine to fully retain its national sovereignty and some sort of compromise that might be necessary to end the human suffering? I think that the attitudes towards that question have shifted since the outbreak of the invasion. Initially, you might remember, um, it wasn't expected that Kiev would actually hold on. Uh, so they were expected to lose quite quickly. And then, you know, Russia being in command of the Ukrainian capital, there would have to be some kind of like negotiation on the basis of that fact. But that isn't what happened. So because of the that surprise, everybody's had to readjust their expectations and readjust them towards what the Ukrainians want, which um, they suddenly have more position to argue for because they've made, they've managed to push back the Russians. The invasion failed in its initial aims, and they actually, you know, push back the Russian army in significant gains in the summer and autumn. So um, that changed the picture a lot. And something that I've noticed is that among EU leaders, whereas once, and in the early months, you might have, you know, heard little subtle hints about, you know, you're going to have to come to a negotiation eventually, um, that rhetoric very much hardened. And everyone began to say it's, this is very much a piece that Ukraine has to define. Um, and what the phrase that you hear now is that the European support is there until for as long as it takes um, for, a piece, for a piece that Ukraine is happy with. And I think what's at the heart of that um, is it, I, d I did an interview um, which will be published this weekend with David O'Sullivan, who is the... EU's head of sanctions enforcement. He's a special envoy for sanctions. 
um, and he happens to be Irish. And I asked him, how did he put the case to third countries that weren't convinced about the EU's attachment to Ukrainian victory? How did he explain to them why it matters to the to Europe and what was the argument he put forward? And he said, this is existential for Europe. And I said, well, what do you mean existential? And he said, existential in that we don't believe that if Vladimir Putin wins in Ukraine, that it will stop there. You know, we believe that he would invade other countries. Um, so that's that's what's at the heart of this. The, even if there was a peace settlement now with Russia and they were allowed to keep some part of Ukraine or something like that, the, there isn't a belief in Europe that that would end it. They think that that would actually encourage Russia to push for more. So that's why there's an attachment to the idea of pushing Russia out and not allowing a victory to Putin that might encourage further imperialistic ambitions. We're going to take a very quick break, but before we do, just to remind you that if you want to read all of Naomi's and Derek's and Dennis's journalism, along with all the other journalism in the Irish Times and on irishtimes.com, uh, and if you're not a subscriber, why not subscribe now at irishtimes.com slash subscribe. We'll be back after this. And welcome back. Derek, Naomi was just talking there um, before the break about the, I suppose, the, the the increased support for Ukraine over the course of the of the last year. And what one of the factors in that, I, I think it's fair to say, has been the very effective lobbying, pressurization of the of the Kyiv government and Zelensky in particular. I mean, is there any sense underneath the surface in the German establishment that they're being kind of pushed into something? Um, by outside forces. Is there any sense of resentment there as to how effective that campaign for support has been? Well, I think with uh, Chancellor Schultz, you know, he came uh, into power in December of 2021. So he was in power literally two months and he has war in Europe on his hands. And since then, what we've very much seen is he's very much anxious to be seen as his own man. He he really digs in when pressure is coming, pressure to do this, pressure to do that. It, it's, it's a common line in Germany. They say people say they expect German leadership. They want leadership from us, but they also want to dictate the direction and the pace of what we do. So I think we're seeing with Schultz. Also, what we've seen under Angela Merkel, a sense of Germany very tentatively, very slowly trying to define what it wants for itself in, in crisis situations like this. And you could see that a little bit at the Munich Security Conference last week. So Schultz was, uh, Olaf Scholz was talking to you know, international uh, diplomats and politicians, and he said, you know, we want to continue to strike the balance on the best possible for s- support for Ukraine and avoiding unintended escalation. Now, critics would say, well, you're providing tanks. Is that not an escalation? But um, he said, it's not true that our arms are, are prolonging the war. It, the opposite is the case. And um, But what I thought was interesting, when, when just after him, Emmanuel Macron spoke, he made no reference to Scholz. As far as I could tell, they actually hadn't uh, met each other at that point. But he was talking very much in his speech about the need to create a durable, credible peace um, now, he did talk about closer European cooperation on defence and nuclear deterrence, but he was very much looking at the time after. So I thought that was interesting that um, while in Germany in opposition and on the left and the right, um, there is very much talk for what is the game plan, what is the exit plan, where are we going, well, what are we doing with these tanks? 
Um, Schultz himself seems to have hardened his line and he's very much in step with Joe Biden on this, that whatever it takes, as long as it takes for Ukraine. Interestingly, um, the, the opposition to this line is quite strong in Germany from sort of older um, voices like the 95-year-old philosopher Jürgen Habermas. Um, he was warning last week about, you know, we need to be careful that we don't slide more or less unnoticed, sort of sleepwalk beyond the threshold for a third world war. And this weekend in Berlin, there's going to be a, a rally on Saturday at the Brandenburg Gate um, for people who are demanding that Germany be at the forefront of the diplomatic push for peace. And um, almost 600,000 people have signed a petition demanding that Germany should be that force for peace. And, and the, the, the headline of the, of the petition is negotiation does not mean capitulation. Negotiation means making compromises on both sides. Now, many people in Germany are infuriated by that and they say there are no compromises to be made with Putin at the moment and we cannot be uh, demanding uh, over Ukraine's head that it somehow acts this way or that way. But it's a very mixed, very ambivalent, very worried Germany that we have. Um, but what we have seen in the last year is that Germany very much emerging as a country that wants to make up its own mind about what it does at what point. Uh, and um, quite surprised that sometimes its its critics are far less bolshy on certain things, including battle tank deliveries, than it has actually proven to be itself. Yeah, but isn't the reality and isn't the the fact of war, doesn't, doesn't the history tell us that once war breaks out, it sort of supersedes everything else? And it strikes me looking at the sort of the establishment position in Germany and the opposition to it, as you describe it there, that the establishment, most of us, most of our governments are waiting to see what happens on the battlefield because that is what is going to have the greatest impact on how things play out if they ever are to play out in the negotiating room. Indeed. I mean, just Germany's history, I mean, it's war history. I mean, it's it, 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 it's a dilemma, whichever way it looks. It, it feels culturally, emotionally, historically, a huge burden is the, the 22 million um, uh, Soviet Red Army and Russian dead. Uh, and it also feels, you know, Ukraine were the killing fields of Nazi Germany. So wh where does it go there? Where, what is, is its obligation not then to perhaps to uh, the rules, the Western rules-based order, po the post-war second chance that Germany was given? And um, nobody here really, there is, a, there is a sort of a sinking feeling, I think, among many Germans that somehow people are being sucked into something, uh, less, you know, sleepwalking than being sucked in. And of course, Germany is a huge um, supplier, manufacturer of the tanks, of weapon systems and so on. Um, so it's, it's I think, a year on, there's just a, a terrible sort of sinking feeling in Germany that something is underway that may not be able to be stopped at this stage. Dennis, I'm interested in your thoughts on this, not just because of your China perspective, but also as a, you know, as a former correspondent in Berlin and Brussels and London and, and, and Washington, you have a very good overview um, of, of this and the way that these different power centres sort of intersect um, with each other. I was listening to a podcast with the, um, the former White House official Fiona Hill, who served under Obama and famously testified in Trump's first uh, impeachment hearing. And she had some interesting observations on Vladimir Putin, on whom she is a specialist. And she really said that, you know, 
he will be waiting for any sign of weakness in relation to this. She described him as somebody who's learned his adversarial skills, not through chess, which is the, the parallel people often look to, but for judo. So he's always searching for weakness and for advantage. Um, and as Naomi said earlier, um, any sort of a truce offers him all kinds of weaknesses and advantages. So we're in this moment of stasis here. And if China wants to get people to a negotiating table, does it have any real leverage to get people there? I think it's uh, difficult, and as you describe it, uh, you know the logic of the uh, of the position that you're describing, and of the uh, and of the, the the position that Naomi was quoting and describing, is that you just keep going with war because if you can't find a compromise, if there is no compromise that is, is acceptable, then that the logic of that is that you keep going. But if you go back to Clausewitz, and you think about what is the, the purpose of war, what is the purpose of military force, what's the use of military force, it is, as Derek was describing it, it is actually uh, to shape, that you use events in the battlefield to shape the uh, what happens at the diplomatic negotiating table. It is to strengthen your position in an ongoing negotiation. And uh, now that can happen. And so, you know, this famous notion that it's the continuation of politics by other means, that it actually is, you know, these things are connected. And so you have to, at some stage, and it may be that uh, that where the Western powers have found themselves now is that uh, they believe that you just have to have months more of killing and dying in Ukraine uh, before uh, you can start speaking about the idea of having a negotiated settlement. But whatever that negotiated settlement is going to be, uh, it's very likely to be one that's uh, an unhappy one for both sides. And it's unlikely, for example, to see uh, the withdrawal of uh, Russian forces from all of Ukraine's territory, including Crimea. That seems to me to be very, very unlikely as an outcome. And uh, and if you're not going to consider creative solutions to uh, you know, uh, to other territorial and other kind of questions surrounding the future of Ukraine, then I think you are postponing the uh, the moment of, uh, of of finding peace. I think what China has. Uh, in its favour is, uh, first of all, it has alliances, uh, or rather, it has it has alliances of interest, and it has you know its view is shared by many people around uh, the global south. Some of these are people, are countries that uh, the United States and its allies need for one reason or another, and then the other f- factor which I suppose that China China would be thinking in terms of, is how much more do people in uh, Europe, for example. Uh, want to continue with this and the uh, disjunction between uh, what the elites in a country like Germany and the commentariat uh, are saying and what at least a large number of the people seem to be thinking is one which is, uh, I think, something, you know, that's, that's a space that, uh, that, uh, that people in China might think might offer, at least at some stage in the future, uh, some opportunity for pressuring politicians uh, into pursuing peace rather than more war. Would they be right in thinking that, um, Naomi? Uh, uh, one of the things that strikes me is that, you know, the, um, Maloney, the new um, the new leader in Italy, um, very much turned her back on the previous populist right position on Putin and Russia and is, seems to be very much signed up to the, the current policy. Is there a sign in other European countries of nervousness about a, about a revolt against this, as Dennis describes it, elite position? There was very much nervousness about a public revolt before the winter because there was a real concern that it would be a hard winter. 
um, that it would be very cold, that people would struggle a lot with energy bills and that public opinion could turn um, very dramatically against support for Ukraine. I think that there's actually been encouragement in that that didn't actually materialize as much as was uh, feared. Um, so it depends on the country. Some countries have more of a public opinion challenge to deal with than others. Derek was outlining the situation in Germany. In Italy, there's quite a divided public as well, um, which is divided in also the uh, current coalition government. And Georgia Maloney, like you said, has to continually prove herself that uh, that she's a friend of Ukraine and that she's on board and that she's, uh, you know, not go- she, that she supports NATO and, and all of that. She has to keep uh, reiterating that because of what her coalition partners say. Um, other countries have had uh, issues like Chechia, for example, ahead of their presidential election had big protests, but ultimately the winning candidate was the pro-Western alliance candidate. Um, so it hasn't materialized to the extent that was feared. Um, perhaps it's just been delayed. Um, but uh, I'm kind of interested in what Dennis was saying about China's position in terms of um, wanting a compromise and stuff, because I think for certainly for European leaders, there is a really important um, principle at stake, which is that borders shouldn't be redrawn by force. And I would imagine that that's also very uh, much of interest to China as well. Um, And the precedent that was set, I think, when Crimea was annexed in 2014, used to be part of Ukraine, then it was annexed by Russia and has been under occupation since then. Um, there wasn't much of a reaction from Europe. And that could have been the case, I think, this time as well, um, had not um, Kiev actually resisted and, and stood um, and forced also through public opinion um, the European leaders to do more to support Ukraine. Um, so that principle about not withdrawing borders by force is massively important, including for small countries like Ireland, um, because it's something that's very much in favour or, or, or it, it, it's important to any power that's weaker in any kind of international, um, could be China versus the US, for example. Um, so I'm kind of interested in, in that, the position there. On that, actually, there's a very interesting point that you make, and it's absolutely right that China you know, uh, constantly refers to the, this principle of territorial integrity. But you will also remember that uh, part of the justification that Vladimir Putin used for his annexation of Crimea was the precedent of Kosovo, where the uh, where the Western powers chose to uh, to redraw boundaries by uh, by means of uh, of a plebiscite. And uh, and and ignored the you know the the United Nations, and so in a sense you know the fact is that you can find broken precedents uh, on all sides where this is concerned, and uh, but I think it certainly is uh, the case that uh, you know what uh, that China has been repeatedly uh, you know stressing this idea, and that's part of the ambiguity of its position. But I think, having said all of that, that you can look around the world and even closer to home, like, say, in Cyprus, and you can look at a situation like northern Cyprus, which is not in any sense recognized by uh, the rest of Cyprus as being uh, you know, annexed you know, or as being seceded. But nonetheless, uh, there is a sort of a de facto partition and you have nobody dying there. And so you can have all kinds of, uh, I suppose what I'm saying is that, uh, and this I have to say is my own view as well, that there are, there's a lot of space between the complete defeat of Vladimir Putin on the one hand and the complete 
victory uh, and fulfillment of all of Ukraine's uh, aims uh, on the other. And it's within that space that if there is to be some kind of peace to be found, that it must be found. I suppose the fear is that the precedent set is, um, if territory is ceded to Russia, is that, okay, you can launch an invasion, you might get not get everything that you want, but you at least get like half, because people simply won't want, the, the resistance to continuing conflict will be stronger than wanting to uphold that principle. I think that's certainly what drives um, the EU countries, particularly those the ones that might be next on the list for invasion, and constantly fear invasion from Russia and are openly talked about on Russian state television as being part of the natural wider territory of Russia and Russian control and so on, like the Baltic states and like Poland and so on. So I, I think that that's, um, that's certainly what drives them. And the that strength of resistance with that block of the strength of resistance within the EU that has that has um, grown in influence, I think, and has hardened the overall EU position, which otherwise would probably have tended more towards compromise, as you lay out. But, no, but I think the other point, I think, that again, voices in the global south uh, would would make is they would ask the question, do these precedents and rules only apply to Europe? Do they not apply to countries like Iraq? Do they not apply to the Middle East? Do they apply to uh, to Africa? Do they apply? You know, is it only in Europe where countries must be protected by these rules and precedents? Because that appears to be the way in which America and its allies have approached these things. If I may take Dennis's point about cynical real politic, which I think is which I think is well made, Derek, and and bring you back in as well, because another factor it seems to be underlying this is not just claims made for the, you know, the divine sanctity of national borders, but a broader concern based on the last 20 years that in the the midst of the the ruins of the former Soviet Empire or Russian Empire, there's this core instability which has been driven by by Putin's regime over the last 20 years, an attempt to reassemble that empire, perhaps to do it in bits and pieces with small wars and proxy wars and taking bites out of Georgia and little bits out of Moldova, and that this is really just an expression, a larger expression, the full-scale war that we have at the moment of things that have been going on in Ukraine for 20 years. In other words, in short, that that the, the current Russian government is a recipe for instability and ongoing conflict, and that's why it needs to be stopped now. Is that the analysis that is underpinning now the um, the the more robust response? It's not just a question of uh, of Ukraine's borders having been breached, but that this has been an ongoing process which has just gone further than than most most European countries can accept. Because as far as they're concerned, we've heard this plenty of times. As Naomi said, uh, the Baltic countries are next. Moldova is next. Who knows? Well, I mean, speaking from Germany, I mean, it really has been a cold shower, an absolute shock. We've had this transition from Merkel to Schultz, and right in the middle of it now, we have this sort of, we have almost like the the the, the story has just been ripped, the narrative has, has been ripped. Now, if you talk to Angela Merkel now, she'll say she had no illusions that um, Putin has been trying to destroy NATO for years. And then the question that I would love to ask her if I was trapped in a lift with her was, well, if you knew he was planning to, everything, every waking moment was about trying to dis, dis, uh, disrupt Europe and undermine the EU and, and NATO, why were you doing these gas deals with him? 
Um, but that's a question that Germany has yet really to answer. Um, what, what, but she would say she had no illusions also about Ukraine, that the Ukraine um, of the time of uh, the annexation of Crimea is very different to the Ukraine we see today. And that, you know, the criticism, why didn't Germany and other countries allow them into the EU or uh, or into NATO? Because we would have been dealing uh, with a, a corrupt cronyist state uh, and you know, the idea of uh, uh, attack on one is an attack on all. They weren't really comfortable with that Ukraine being part of that doctrine. So, you know, Merkel has really her her reputation. Um, on the one hand, has taken a battering, but on the other hand, she said she never really had any illusions about about Putin and Russia. Many people would say she was the person who knew him best, but she really wasn't had no romantic notions about the Ukraine that she was dealing with at the time. Her sort of standard response now is it was disintegrating, but with the mince steel which has been criticized and wasn't adhered to and so on she was trying to hold things up so that there was time for ukraine to change to reform and to become more part of of western norms western alliances and so on that so for some people that's a bit of sort of you know revisionist narrative but i think when you think back to the time 2000 you know almost a decade ago that's where things were and um but i think germany just as always many people in germany always feel you know no particular love for moscow but no huge warmth for the u.s there's lots of people here who are very skeptical of the u.s and have always felt germany's interests are best kept you know equidistant between the two capitals at the moment we see a disruption in that at the moment we see the transatlantic side very much with the upper hand but the other side of the debate hasn't gone away the other side that perhaps um, giving into demands and providing, you know, the German um, German arms and activating uh, the German uh, military industrial industries is not necessarily um, sustainable. So there are those two sides, and I think Germany is just at this in its own post-war, post-Cold War history. It's at this interesting juncture, but I think its illusions and its lack of illusions for 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 both sides uh, of this conflict that that's very much reflecting in the European mainstream. No, let's just remember that probably hundreds of people will die between now and the actual anniversary in two in two days' time. Tens of thousands of people may die if the escalation of hostilities um, happens, as most people are predicting over the next uh, over the next two to three months in in Brussels and in Europe. Is there is there a sense of where where the end of this is at all? Uh, a realistic sense, or is it just a question at this point now of doggedly plowing on? The main focus now is um, concern about the length of the conflict and the fact that nothing, nobody prepared for this. So this is all an unexpected development and everybody's sort of like racing to catch up. Um, you know, they would, like they always repeat, you know, when when asked when where, what's the peace plan and when is the end of the war that, it could end tomorrow, you know, if Moscow decided that they didn't want to continue with the invasion, then it would be over. Um, and that there's a big inequality in the price that would be paid because, okay, Ukraine did, could decide to, um, you know, admit defeat and stop fighting, but then would stop existing as a nation and also suffer massive repression for anyone who, like, believed in Ukrainian nationhood, whereas Russia would just be left in the same position as it had before it's invasion, you know, it would be losing a lot less. Um, so that's the sort of response to that. Um, but concretely, uh, the main issue now, the main sort of concern that you hear talked about is the inadequacy of European defence, um, 
industry to meet the demand that they've committed to now in Ukraine, in, um, in allowing Ukraine to keep fighting, specifically on ammunition. Um, there's a statistic that's quoted by officials at the moment, which is that Russia uses in a day the entire output of ammunition of European factories of a month. Um, now, Ukraine uses less than that, something around a third, they think. Uh, but still, it's a this massive demand, and what you have is a huge backlog of orders. So, you know, orders placed now might only arrive in about two years' time. And this is the kind of issue that can win or lose a conflict. So, having committed to Ukraine now, there's this big uh, scramble and dilemma about how to actually follow through on those promises. Dennis, um, you mentioned war being the continuation of politics by other means. Another definition of war is it's a failure, failure of statecraft, failure of diplomacy, a failure of the kind of the the links which countries have set up over the years to prevent war happening in the, in the, in the first place is is that a useful way of looking at it at all and is there any any is this in a way a symptom of a broader geopolitical um problem or rising tensions across the world at the moment people talk about a recalibration of great power conflicts between the United States and China does it does this fit into that picture as well it is a failure of statecraft it's also a failure of the imagination. And one of the things that's striking about this war, uh, if you compare it to uh, the other wars of this century, is how muted the voices of opposition to war have been in Europe and in the United States. And uh, and this is unusual, uh, because uh, if you think back to Iraq, if you think, think to back to to any of the others uh, since the start of the war, of this century, there, there was a large body, even if it was a minority in some countries, that uh, that was calling for uh, for alternatives to war, and that seems uh, to be uh, one uh, one of the most dangerous elements of all of this, which is just this logic of. Uh, uh, the battlefield being the only place that you can really finally sort these things out. And as we know from history, the battlefield seldom uh, sorts uh, things out really uh, to anybody's great satisfaction. And the danger is that this, uh, that this logic will spread uh, beyond Russia. Russia is, uh, uh, has got a huge nuclear arsenal. The danger of, uh, of escalation into a nuclear conflict is uh, it is a real one. It's, it has to be uh, it has to be one that's considered when you are dealing with uh, uh, with a nuclear armed power. And if uh, the United States and its allies feel emboldened uh, by success uh, in Ukraine to uh, take a, a similarly robust approach to uh, to China, then I think we are all heading for uh, heading for trouble. And uh, and so I do think it's a very it's a very gloomy moment uh, in uh, in the politics of the world, and I just hope that uh, that it will change uh, that some events, and hopefully they won't be too gruesome, that these events will uh, will change some minds uh, over the coming weeks or months. We'll leave it there on that unhappy note. Uh, remember that you can read Dennis Derrick's and Naomi's journalism in the Irish Times. Thanks very much to them for joining us today. Thanks also to our producer, Depton Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We're going to be back with you very soon indeed. But until then, thank you very much for listening. <laughs>